0: Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we skip the interview and go right to the Weekly Rundown Show with John Ruffalo. John, we have missed you. Welcome back to The Tank. How you been? Great, great. Great, man. (laughs) A lot of stuff going on at the start off the year. I mean, I don't know where we should start. Maybe we should start off with how the venture capital industry had a big fall. Obviously, the CBCA tracked $6.9 billion invested across 660 deals during the entire year fall of about 34% from the 2022 period. You know, where deal volume was relatively flat year over year. Most of this obviously is due to the late stage market drying up. A huge decline in the Series C and D and E rounds and so on, given that the IPO windows basically shut. You know, what are your thoughts here going into the start of this year? You know, was the 2023 the reset year or are we still have a little bit more skeletons in the closet to shake out before we start to see a rebound?
1: Yeah, man, I, I can tell you really more on the, the later stage uh, side of, of the market. I was expecting latter half of 2023 to start resetting, but I was I was wrong. And just before Christmas, we started to see the signs of it resetting. And into this first quarter, it's been extraordinarily busy for us. And what I could uh, attribute it to is a couple of things. Last year was the year of the reckoning. Uh, where people were uh, trimming their costs, laying off folks, looking at their cash runways. It feels like the, the perceived survivors are now looking forward now and looking at 2024 as a fundraising year for them, but on um, businesses that are far more conservative. And what we're also hearing is a number of funding sources, particularly in Canada, have decreased substantially. So it really is becoming the survival of the fittest, but maybe this is what the market needs to make these companies bigger, stronger, faster.
0: Yeah, survivors become thrivers in 2024 is the headline I'm sure people wanna see. I guess the question is though, what happens to those companies that didn't raise at all in 2023 are still living off their 2022 runway and now we're into the first half of 2024 And they have no growth, maybe less, you know, net revenue retention, so churn. And the market isn't really interested in, you know, cleaning up somebody else's mess. So are we going to see that kind of reckoning maybe coming out in the next month? We saw a lot of layoffs happening from some of those older, you know, kind of first vintage uh, breakout names from the 2015, 2016 funds. Are we now sort of going to see the the wiping out of those and then the rebirth of ones that figured out how to get to profitability and, and back on the track?
1: Based on the deal flow that we're seeing again, there is a, a movement towards, again, the perceived winners, and let's call those the A opportunities. The Cs, they're going bankrupt, and it, it doesn't really matter. The ones that are going to have, I think the most challenges the B's. These are companies that have no growth, probably have a decent business, but very, very difficult to get it. Uh, you know maybe, maybe they're EBITDA flat. What happens to those businesses? They're not going to be financeable businesses and they're going to be acquisition targets perhaps, but even the acquirers have really slowed up their activities. That is something to watch out for this year. And, you know, w- without using a, a, an ill term, call that the zombies. And I'm curious to see what will happen to the zombies, because I can tell you on the public side, the zombies are getting privatized. So you're seeing a number of those. Well, what happens on the private side? We just
0: saw it happen. I mean, Think Research was acquired by their lender, BD Capital, which is a Vancouver-based private equity firm that lends capital to sort of software tech companies. They acquired the remaining shares outstanding uh, for $0. 32 cents a share. Obviously, the stock went public at the height of when small cap public companies were going out there at uh eight, 10, 12 bucks a share. So it lost 90% of its value. But the interesting thing about this acquisition is it's the lender, B.D, who gave them 25 million dollars, I believe, is acquiring the shares, uh, and then they're going to what run this you know software tech company until they can get a lot of their money back. Do you think we'll see a, m- a lot more of that?
1: Because the banks aren't going to do it. The banks are definitely not going to do it. and it's when you look at an opportunity like that, what's their alternative is to allow someone else to buy it when there's already a lot of debt in there. I think in this example, BD took control of their own uh, destiny and hopefully are going to try to realize more than uh, uh, 100% of the dollar. Yeah. I think as an equity investor, you got to be very careful. As an equity investor, correct.
0: But I think in the private equity world, the private equity guys seem to be quite busy these days. Um, There's a lot of opportunities out there for them. We saw a huge uptick in private equity deal flow. And you're obviously seeing that as well as a, a pseudo growth equity uh, investor as well. Tell us what kind of opportunities you're seeing. Is it, you know, traditional EBITDA positive, EBITDA negative businesses, and and how messy are some of these deals that are coming across your desk?
1: We're highly selective. So the ones that we're highly engaged with, everyone is actually EBITDA positive. Frankly, net income positive, cash flow positive, growing sustainably with a very compelling uh, unit economics The difference now is kind of what you were just saying earlier, you're competing against those. If you're a company that's not growing, you are competing for capital with folks that are are looking pretty good. And so it will be very difficult to outshine some of those opportunities. Other thing that's interesting, and I spoke to a number of pension funds in particular last week deal flow activity on the private equity side in the United States is almost back to normal. In Canada, not even close. So we're seeing this bifurcation of Canada and the United States, even on the private.
0: Well, I mean, that's where a lot of the deals in the private equity space, it's just a much larger market with so many different slices of private equity that agreed. I mean, we saw uh, Mark Carney's Brookfield fund. What was it? $10 billion raised you know, I can't imagine a lot of that's going to go into the Canadian market. If anything, it's going to be a much global, you know, infrastructure clean tech fund. But speaking of funds, you know, you and I talked before. Foundry Group shutting down, eighteen-year-old venture fund, three and a half billion in assets, has quietly decided to shut down and not raise any more funds. And it was kind of unexpected, given that they just raised a five hundred million dollar fund last year. So I don't really understand why this is something that's happening at a firm like this, but. My hunch is maybe like succession planning was
1: just not something that they were able to figure out. But what are your thoughts here? Great firm. I, I, was, I was disappointed uh, to see that. What surprised me really is that there's two types of VC funds. For the m- most part, there are, is, a, is, is not a, a firm built for succession. So once the principals uh, retire, it winds up shop. And that's what Foundry said. That was always their intention. But that's the intention for the vast majority of VCs. And then what they do is they make the decision only when they're about or fully invested in their current fund. Here is the problem that I'm just scratching my head. You know, they have said that they're gonna you know, seek out and you know do a bunch more investing. I think they were about halfway through. If you are a company that's particularly a very good one, will you wanna take that capital knowing? that the people are going to be flocking out. So I was just really surprised about that negative signaling and don't know why uh, they didn't really wait until they really had to make a decision. But maybe they just felt morally that they wanted to notify their LPs. But I I found it very odd. Same thing happened with OpenView. Still questioning what the heck happened there.
0: Yeah, I mean, co-founder and partner Seth Levine wrote basically saying, while other VC firms rarely want to make decisions like this, this is exactly what we planned to do when we started Foundry in 2006. From our founding, we intentionally not to build a generational legacy firm, blah, blah, blah. And we evaluating each potential new fund as a new fundraising cadence requires, you know, but not this time we decided not to raise another fund. Foundry 2022 will be our last fund. And then on his personal blog, he said, this is not something that we had never not discussed. Basically, this is what we always were planning on it. So I mean, I guess if you're being transparent at the beginning of a fundraise and say, hey, just so you know, this will be our last fundraise, but we're going to run the fund for 10 years. Like, I guess that's okay. Uh, Rather than saying it when you do the final close and then say it's over, uh, that would be a different story, I guess. One thing I noticed that uh, we talked about before, but now we're starting to see it happening more and more is uh, the CEO shakeups at uh, private companies and public companies. You know, last week we saw the return of Dax De Silva to Lightspeed Commerce, you know, after uh, leaving for some time and handing over the reins to his executive JP. Now he's coming back to reinvigorate Lightspeed. What do you think here is happening? And do you think this was a decision made by the board, by Dax, by, you know, large investors or just something that had to be done?
1: I have no idea. But, you know, the other big one in the United States was Flexport the exact same thing. One of the challenges in doing that is that once you leave at, and to do other things, and we've just gone through one of the greatest upheavals in the last you know, 15 years, You know, the question really is, were the negative situations as a result of bad management or was it bad timing? If it's bad management, well, in both cases, they left behind a legacy of folks that they've largely hired. And so now all of a sudden they're saying that, you know, things are absolutely terrible where the real pressure, oh, by the way, the other one is Disney is another good example, right? It's a little bit of the hearkening back to the good old days, but is that really a fallacy or was there something really done That was a complete mismanagement on Lightspeed's case. I can't see that. I follow the stock, but, you know, I I didn't see anything that was particularly done. But maybe that was the board that just said, you know what, we run out of ideas. Uh, Let's see if Dax could redeliver his tremendous magic. And maybe they need a shot of entrepreneurialism back, you know, through the organization.
0: Is this like when LeBron comes back to Cleveland for one year? Like Is this when the, the the star athlete has you know good run, leaves on a high note and then comes back to rescue, I don't know, the franchise? Yeah, you know
1: what the problem is on that? The founder coming back, that is such a high risk move, too. I know it's your baby. I get it. but especially when you had a tremendous legacy, the odds of you maintaining that legacy is extremely low. So look at Iger right now. He went from genius to now. They're going, oh, maybe the guy before it wasn't so bad after all, right? And 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 I, I do wonder that's where we're going to end up with in these situations. I mean, look, Steve Jobs did it, and I think that was a maybe a one-off, you know, one
0: in a million kind of situations, and maybe people are trying to live through that. I, but I agree. Like the only time you should see this maybe is when there's like a private equity transaction and that company goes to shit, and then they buy back the company you know, for cents on the dollar, and then they rebuild it. Those stories are the best. But this is not really that situation. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, we got to end off on everything AI. So two main headlines in AI. One is NVIDIA just continues to blow the roof off with 265% growth, uh, $22 billion in the quarter in revenue uh, ending in January. I mean, the free cash flow of this thing is spitting off. Of 11.2 billion of free cash flow in the quarter up from 1.7 billion year over go quarter. That means this company can literally spend as much money as they want on every AI startup and still have enough left over to do whatever the hell they want with. Like how do you even compete as a VC fund when NVIDIA has this much cash flow to basically pick off the best AI companies and
1: then, you know, keep the the assets if they actually work? The old adage, you know, better to invest in the picks and the shovels. That's what Nvidia is doing. Who by a year ago, I sold all of my Nvidia. There was no <laughs> <way>. <laughs> I think there's no way they were so overvalued. So I, I obviously blew. Uh, I blew the egg on the face there. Seven X gone. Yeah, like where where do you go from here? And the challenge in their industry, of course, is it takes a long time to ramp up, and they've got a lot of new co- uh, competition coming down the pipe. The one thing that will be interesting to see is the impact on the Chinese market to NVIDIA. And right now, they're almost the only game in town. Maybe ARM is a good alternative, but Intel has retooled. Uh, you've got these other ones that are retooling. Uh, you've got these startups coming along. you got Sam uh, wanting to... Uh, raised $7 trillion for the- That was uh, debunked, but yes, that was the
0: story, basically. He wanted to be vertically integrated. I know that for sure. Speaking of Sam, I mean, that one continues to make more headlines. First off, the release of Sora. I don't know anyone who is investing in creator tools or 3D image uh, generation or content media generation companies, because they just got blown out by OpenAI again. Out of the water. Out of the water. I can't believe it. Uh, Why would you put yourself in the lines then there? But they also just hit $2 billion in recurring revenue. It's one of the fastest companies, again, uh, in seven years, I guess, since its founding, joining Google and Meta and making billions in revenue within a decade of being founded. That's a pretty crazy runway. They are saying uh, 92% of Fortune 500 companies now use ChatGPT and 100 million weekly users.
1: I do wonder, though, what is the level of activity on an a, a per-user basis is there a bunch of elephants that are using it like crazy and the vast majority that got it and then uh, started decreasing their, their usage of it? But yeah, I mean, $2 billion, that's... that's- What's interesting that they
0: are uh, obviously figuring out, so they've got like the SaaS model, obviously, for the 20 bucks a month. What we're seeing in our startups, which is really cool, is they're, they're kind of copying the token model where it's like they're incorporating this OpenAI API cost, like the token cost, into their COGS. And then they're doing like cost plus on top of that. So right now, like our early stage companies are actually saying, okay, this is what our monthly recurring revenue is. This is what our COGS are. And then they're breaking the COGS down between like AWS percent cost to OpenAPI API. Uh, and things like that. And so we're actually starting to see a much more distilled version of how businesses can be making money because of this tokenization model, Uh, which I think is really interesting. We didn't see that, you know, before. It was really just like every company was 80%, you know, gross margin. But I'm starting to see a lot of companies actually try to understand their COGS much more. And that's really a good sign. I mean, I'd love to see what theirs are. (laughs) I'm sure it's the inverse
1: on their COGS, but nonetheless. And can't you wait until... Enterprises actually utilize the applications to achieve cost reductions. It, like, it really hasn't happened at any sort of scale. When and if that happens, like, wow, it's going to be explosive.
0: Everyone said Google was the greatest business model ever created with 90 plus percent margins uh, for the last, you know, what, t- two decades. I mean, we may see the best models yet to come. I mean, NVIDIA is proving that now, but there still could be a lot more out there. Very exciting times. All right, John. Well, it's great to have you back in the tank. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Matt. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or YouTube. Next, Follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague could benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Tots engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.